Acts chapter 5, we are starting in verse 12, continuing the story. (coughs) We read, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest uh, dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. As we come to chapter 5, this this next section, this is coming on the tail end of what has just happened with a man and a woman uh, who were married, this married couple, Ananias and Sapphira. If you recall from the text last week, uh, they were acting in response to uh, what they had seen this man Barnabas do, being uh, changed and transformed by the gospel because Barnabas was affected so greatly in such a deep way by the gospel. And because many of them in the church were, Barnabas sought to give, to contribute He took some of the land that belonged to him and he sold that land and he gave the full amount to the apostles. He gave it as an offering to them for the uh, furthering of the church. And Ananias and Sapphira, they saw this. They thought, wow, like everybody really thinks a lot of, uh, of this man. And so they thought, you know what, let's sell our land and, and we will kind of do this same thing, except Their thought was that they sold this land, they took the money, and they said that they gave all of it, when in fact they only gave a portion of it. What they were really after was notoriety, fame. They were after glory. They wanted to be recognized as generous people, as givers. And there we find in the story that the Lord brings judgment upon them. He gives them this opportunity to be truthful, but then because they are uh, not truthful, because they lie... The story specifically says because they uh, decided in their hearts to lie to God and to test the Holy Spirit, to test God, they did this uh, with um, bad motives. Because they did this, the Lord judges them, and he brings uh, this judgment to bear on them. And those who hear of this, both within the church and outside the church, are amazed. They're blown away. They are uh, they can't believe what God has done. And what this is doing is, is showing that God's power is real, that he is true. We find the last verse there in verse 11 of, uh, of Acts chapter 5. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So what we're finding out is as we look at the church, the early church rolling into this section, the church... Uh, has this reputation now of seriousness. It's a serious thing to be a disciple. It's not something that you would do flippantly and say, oh yeah, you know, I really want to be a part of that, uh, that team, that community, that group, but not really take it seriously. We've seen that those who don't take it seriously, there are these repercussions that the Lord has brought, this judgment that he's brought upon this group of people. And so this kind of colors the text in one aspect as we come into this next section where the apostles are more popular than ever, but yet people kind of want to keep their distance. It's like, "Eh, that seems like a cool thing. That's one of the things that colors it. But the other thing that colors it is, of course, the peer pressure. That they experience as a result of the religious leaders being on the scene. And so the church will begin to grow. We'll see this. But yet it's going to face uh, its greatest opposition yet. And so as we come into the text, we read this first section in Acts chapter 5, verse 12. We find that many signs and wonders were done regularly among the people by the hands of the apostles And they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now, I want you to see here that this uh, description, this 
uh, response that we find here in verse 12, it's easy for us to read over that. But this is a direct and specific answer to their prayers. This is something that they had asked God for. They asked him for something specifically, and he responded. Look at what we find in Acts chapter 4, verse 29. Here's what they pray. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You see, they they pray this specific thing. They say, Lord, we want to be used by you. We want to do what you've called us to do. We want to be your witnesses. And we want you to continue to show yourself strong. We want you to continue to heal. And and we want you to stretch out your hand and to bring healing to these people. And the Lord did just that. This is the fulfillment of their request. And I think often when we think about our prayers, we pray real generally. But I think this encourages us to pray specifically. It encourages us to ask for things uh, with, the, with the most intimate of details. So when the Lord delivers, he's giving us the response that is in connection with the details that we asked for. The, and I want you to see that When you pray these prayers, when you ask the Lord for things, when you ask him to work in your heart with these specific details, the Lord's going to respond with specific details. And sometimes it might not be the specific details that you ask for, but he's going to show you specific things in response. Let me give you a simple analogy. Most of the time that... uh, we go out with, with, the, with the family, we'll go to a coffee shop or something, and the kids want a little drink or they want a snack. And their requests are like timid and small, like, oh, do you think we can maybe like have something? And then there are some instances where they ask specifically, oh, can I have this? And they can know based upon that request, whether I've granted that request. But there's one sort of request that I've noticed doesn't really come out. One of the requests that they, they, they will say is like, oh, can I have something to drink? But they don't say what size. They don't say like, oh, you know, like, oh, can I have something to drink? They're, they're leaving that open. And I think a lot of times that's the way that we respond with the Lord because we're afraid to ask and we don't know what he's going to do. And sometimes we get up the boldness to ask, we're like, oh, Lord, can I have like, can I have, can I have like a, like the extra small? Can I have the extra small? And can you imagine if the Lord was like, oh yeah, here's the extra small. He would have certainly answered your request, but it's the heart of our father to say, here's the extra large. You need the extra large. I want to, I want to hook you up with something greater than you could have ever wanted. And experienced. But it's also the heart of the Father to love us in such a way when we say things like, Oh Lord, can I have the extra large? He's like, I think you need the extra small. I think you need to have this. It's going to be better for you. It's going to be more healthy for you to have this greater thing in smaller amounts. And so it's it's our desire to pray with specifics, but we want to pray asking the Lord uh and being open to his response. And he does this for his disciples in this chapter. They ask specifically for healing. He does this, and then they gather together again and again in Solomon's portico. We saw earlier on in the book of Acts that this is kind of like the the hangout. This is the hangout for that crew. The early church met in Solomon's portico. And so here... They're there, chilling. The people are watching from a distance, the rest of the people of Jerusalem. We find in verse 13, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. The people of Jerusalem, they thought great things about the church, the apostles. And they were like, oh, these guys are awesome. But yet they kept their distance. But at the same time, we see a great response. It's the work of the Lord working on people who draws them to himself. And we find the description in verse 14 that many eventually come forward to join the church. 
This is what we read. And more than ever, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Right? So this is the first description that we have here of both men and women joining the church, not just people in general and not just men. It's men and women who are making this decision, this choice to follow Jesus. And this isn't just a few more people. This is more than ever. The response is greater even in the time where there's great admiration, but yet people are keeping their distance. And so they join, they believe in Jesus. And I like how Luke describes this here as they were added to the Lord. They belong to Jesus. Those who trust in Christ for salvation belong to Jesus. And so they're added to the Lord. They're not added to a specific uh, sect of people, as we'll see here. There are the Pharisees and the Sadducees who show up. The Sanhedrin, the councils gathered together. They're not added to this religious group, but they are brought into the Lord's family. And so many come forward, and we find here, uh, as the church grows, in verse 15, the Lord added more believers than ever, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some. Now, grammatically, this sentence is a little bit confusing because it sounds like people join the church and they're like, oh, we got to get all, like, all of our sick relatives and like put them out into the street. This is just because like Greek is super weird and it's hard to like parse this in a way that is more specific. But the people who trusted in Christ for salvation, they could just go directly to like the apostles, and be like, hey, here's our family. So the people who are laying these uh, family members out into the street are most likely the ones who thought a lot of the disciples, thought a lot of the early church, but yet wanted to keep their distance still. They wanted to, to maintain that still. And so they were like, oh, we're not going to go near them. We're not going to ask them, but maybe like we'll take all of our sick people and lay them out into the street. Maybe like this, this is how, kind of how it will work for us. So that way, if the religious leaders came by and they were like, what are you doing? You're like, oh, you know, he's just like getting some sun out here, just chilling. Although the people of Jerusalem, they didn't join the church. Although they saw the apostles and held them in high esteem, they saw that power. They saw the work of God that was carried out through the apostles. And so they respond in this way by bringing their friends, their family members, out into the streets. This is similar to what Jesus dealt with, right? In Mark chapter 6, verse 54, we find this description. Jesus and the disciples are making their way across this lake to Gennesaret. Here's what happens. When they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him, and they ran about the whole region and began to bring sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. So this is a similar situation. They see that the work of God is happening in these people, and their hope is that Peter's going to cruise by, his shadow's going to fall on them, and uh, they're going to get healed. Now, Luke doesn't tell us that like this was effective. He doesn't say, like, oh yeah, this is an effective plan. He just says, this is the belief of the people. They held them in high esteem. They kept their distance. But here's what they tried to do. They tried to get as close as they could. But while remaining detached. They expected healing. The crowds expected healing to come as a result. Because they saw the power of God at work in the apostles. Now we do find that there are some who are healed as a result of uh, the spread of the gospel and the, and the apostles going out and continuing this mission, we find in verse 16 that the people gathered from towns around Jerusalem. So now the gospel is making its way out into the Judean countryside and they bring sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all healed. So they do what they're supposed to do. Jesus says, start here in Jerusalem and then work outward. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, outermost parts of the earth. This is the plan. This is what's happening. The gospel spreads out from Jerusalem. And then those who are sick and those who are possessed, have unclean spirits, come and they are healed. The Lord makes the, <coughs> 
excuse me, those who are broken new, those who are possessed, he puts his spirit in them and removes these evil spirits. And the church just begins to explode. It's evident that God is working, that people are being healed, and as a result, the gospel continues to spread. But there's also rising opposition. We move into verse 17. Here's what happens. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles <coughs> and put them in the public prison. So first, we've got this guy, the same guy that was there just a couple weeks earlier, the high priest and his posse, the Sadducees. They're not happy about what's happening. They've had enough, and so they take action. The high priest rises up. He's rallying them, and he's like, we've got to deal with this. Now, we find that the reason that they deal with this, they want to ha handle this, is because they were jealous. It's because they were jealous of the popularity of the apostles. They had this feeling that is common to all mankind. Jealousy. They're envious of the success of other people. But this, for us, is a moment to take stock, to look at our response to God working in other locations, in other places, in other people. As God's people, when we see Him working, our response ought to be rejoicing. Rejoicing. As a church, we are for the success, the flourishing of other churches. We are for 100% churches that are going to start tomorrow. If a church opens up like literally across the street, like right there, and you could see them, and they're popping, and it's blowing up, and like people are meeting Jesus, like that's not a bummer. We're excited about people meeting Jesus. Because it's not our church. These people don't belong to us. We all belong to God. And so when God is moving, we want to get behind what God is doing. When he is doing something in our hearts, we're excited about it. When he's doing something in other people's hearts, we're excited about it. We're not for our own purposes, our own glory, but we want to come alongside what God is doing. We're not trying to get him to do things. He's already got a plan. We're just trying to go along with it. We're trying to check in in prayer and be like, Lord, what's on the itinerary? What's happening next? Where are we going? What should we bring? How can we faithfully serve you? And so these men, the religious leaders of this time, they see God is doing something and they're like, we're not on board with that. That's not going to happen. We've got to put a stop to it. And so here's what they do. They take the disciples, they arrest them, and they put them in the public prison. Now, at this time, all prisons were pretty much public. What this means here is that they did this in a way uh, where they arrested them publicly and they put them in prison in a public manner to make a show of their authority. They see the authority of the apostles that's put on display and they're like, okay, well, we need to show these people we need to show the apostles, and we need to show everybody who's so enamored with them who's really in charge. We're going to put this display of power out there. And so they come out, I'm, you know, I don't know how they did this. Maybe they have like this like sweet trumpet and like the guards, and they're like doing their dance on the way out, you know, and trying to like make this big show and finally like arresting them in this proclamation, like here's why we're putting these guys in jail. I don't, I don't know how this went, but I'm... I'm I'm imagining that this is some, uh, th this is the kind of thing they're trying to get across. They did this in such a way to demonstrate their authority. Then God does like his thing. Verse 19, but during the night, the angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. 
So the religious leaders, they are like, oh yeah, we're going to make this big show of power. We're going to exercise our authority over the apostles. And now God's like, oh, that was like really funny that you thought that you had authority and I'm just going to like let them out. So now you guys just will look really dumb when you tried to show that you were powerful. But yet here they are, you know, just a couple hours later doing the same thing. The angel is the one who opens the door and brings them out. It's God specifically intervening in this situation. And he's like, all right, you guys are in jail. Okay, let me come in here, open these things, shut the door. All right, let's go. We're going to head out here. Just so gently and kindly leads them out for a purpose. Now, we want to see here, in this instance, God is specifically declaring his authority over the religious leaders. This isn't the the common thread that we find. uh, uh, Deliverance is not the common thread, not God's authority. Deliverance in trials is not the common thread that we find throughout the book of Acts. This is a bit of an anomaly here. As we look through the rest of the book of Acts, we'll see that just a, a couple of chapters later, that Stephen is brought under great persecution, and he's killed. He's the first martyr. He's not delivered. We'll also see that um, Paul, again and again, he's like imprisoned. He's dealing with like beatdowns. It gets real nasty. And so although the Lord delivers these apostles in this moment, this is not uh, the common experience. They are brought out in this moment. They're freed not for their own freedom, but so that they might serve the Lord. Sound familiar? This is exactly what God does to the children of Israel when they're in Egypt. He rescues them from bondage, from jail, from a prison, so that they might serve him. They might do something in making his glory known. And here again, we find this coming uh, into effect in our story. They're freed so that they might serve the Lord. Look at the command of the angel in verse 20. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So the first thing that the angel of the Lord tells them, go and stand in the temple. They were to go to the very spot where they had already been arrested. This spot in the temple not Solomon's portico, but in the temple area. This is the center of the national life. It's the center of their religious life. They go to the most impactful place where they have been ministering to show God's authority over the religious leaders, over the nation, sending them as his witnesses. Now, the second thing they are to do, we're fine, is to speak to the people all the words of this life. Now, the life that they're speaking of is this, uh, is Jesus. If you look back a couple chapters uh, to chapter 3 and verse 15, in Peter's kind of first sermon there to the religious leaders, he tells them, you killed the author of life. You killed the author of life. Jesus himself says in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so they are to go and to communicate about Jesus. And so, verse 21, when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. They did this in the face of rising opposition. As it got tougher and tougher, they went and they obeyed. Now we find the reaction in verse 21. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. Right? So they're like, all right, next day. And the religious leaders kind of come together and they're like, all right, let's convene our uh, council. All right, bailiff, go and bring in the prisoners. Right? They're like, we're ready. We're ready to, to, to destroy these guys. Verse 22, but when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked 
and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when, now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. Right? So we find a little glimpse into what happens here. Uh, we get this report from the officers that Luke shares with us. Nobody's there. The prison's securely locked, and like the guards are there like they were supposed to be, and like we don't really know what happened. Nope, nobody was in there. And, and I'm imagining while this is like reporting, they're like, what in the world? Verse 25, someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So they find the apostles. They're like, holy smokes, we found them. They're right here in the exact spot that the angel told them to go. And here's what happens. They just say, like, um, we can't, like, arrest you and drag you away. So, like, would you, would you guys, like, mind coming with us, like, back to, like, the jail area? Because you're still in trouble. Like, they can't do anything. If the, if the apostles would have resisted, like, what would have happened? Like, they couldn't escalate their force and the people would have been all mad. But here's what happens. We see that the apostles willingly go with them. They willingly say, all right, we'll, we'll go with you. Why do they go? Why don't they just say, like, no, we're good. Like, we were supposed to be here. Well, they've already seen that if they're in a spot where God doesn't want them to be, he's going to unlock jail doors and bring them out and be like, okay, here's, here's where you're supposed to be. So anything that is going to happen to them or potentially is going to happen to them, the Lord can override it if he needs to. He's going to come in and exercise his authority. He's going to put his power on display. And so they go with them. Verse 27, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So again, the first, I mean, like this is like the second time in just a short while, they find themselves before the council, again, being questioned by the high priest about the same thing. And he, he brings two accusations against them. The first one's about disobedience. He's like, didn't we tell you guys, like, you weren't supposed to talk about Jesus anymore? But there's something that, <laughs> that's like a little bit um, interesting about his response he never says, like, hey, how'd you guys get out of jail? <laughs> There's no, like, um, so, like, we put you guys in jail. Like, he just acts like it didn't happen. He, he pretends, like, it just, just, oh, yeah, we just brought you guys from the jail. He treats it in a way that there has been no intervention. No one even mentions their, their disappearance from prison. Because how do you explain that? Um, yeah, so you guys got out because... You see, the council is not even willing to consider that God would be behind this deliverance. They're like, we're not even going to talk about that. We're going to handle what we're jealous about. We're going to get back to that. And so the high priest brings these accusations. The first one, disobedience. He tells them, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, but yet here you have filled Jerusalem with this teaching. We already told you, and Peter already told him before, like, look, that's not going to happen. We're going to do it. But here he repeats his accusation. The second thing that he says is that you're trying to bring this guilt upon us. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, this statement is, is interesting because as we think about this, the first thing that this means is kind of obvious. It, it, it's, he's saying, you're trying to blame us for this guy's death, for this Jesus who you're proclaiming. 
You're trying to blame us. You're trying to pin this thing on us. Now, earlier, I hope that they would remember that that is exactly the case because Peter told them, like, you killed the author of life. Like, yep, I straight up said you did it. But the second thing that is true about this statement, and although the high priest doesn't realize it, is this is exactly what Peter is trying to do. He's trying to make this statement to this group of people that, yes, you need to be covered by the blood of Jesus. What you did by killing Jesus can only be forgiven by receiving Jesus, by receiving the blood of Christ. And so, yes, you need to be covered by his blood. Peter responds in verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. So the answer to this first accusation of disobedience is the same as the last time that they were before the council. They were like, look, we're going to just have to deal with the consequences of obeying God. This is what he's told us to do. It's God who rescued us, who saved us, who freed us from the prison. It would be God who will continue to rescue us, to sustain us. And so we are going to obey God rather than man. I think this is an important word for us in our culture and our society today. That we will have to make choices and we do have to make choices about obeying God rather than man. And sometimes when we think about this, we think like, oh, man is other people. But a lot of times, the man is our own flesh. We want to do things that are a part of our sinful nature. But we ought to obey God, what he has called us to do. To be sanctified, to be set apart from the world. This means that we have to take stands in our lives for our sanctification, both personally but also in our interactions with other people, in our interactions, in our, in our careers, in our uh, academic pursuits. There are moments where we will have to take stands that say, this is something that is not leading me into obedience toward God, but rather I'm responding out of the fear of man or I'm responding out of the desires of my own heart, the fleshly desires, and being lured away and enticed by these things. We ought to be aware that we should obey God rather than man. Now the second response to the second accusation of this guilt of bringing this man's blood upon us, Peter gives us in verse 30. He says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. So his second response is just straight up gospel proclamation. He's like, you're going to blame us? He's like, yeah, well, here's the gospel. The God of our fathers raised Jesus. Look at what he does there. He links God's participation, the God that they rescued, the Father, they would, they would recognize Yahweh and say, he was a part of it too. Why don't you get on board? He was the one who participated. God participates in the resurrection and was in fact the one who raised Jesus. He says, and you killed him by hanging him on a tree. Now, he's highlighting the, the shameful nature of Jesus' death. The book of Deuteronomy tells us that it's uh, anyone who hangs upon a tree is cursed. That's why he uses this specific phrasing. And he says this means that he was cursed for other people so that other people would not be cursed. And because God has vindicated him, because he has resurrected him, he, th there's some exchange has taken place, some substitution has taken place because God would not uh, resurrect someone who was to be blamed. But because Jesus was innocent, holy, pure, but yet paid the price for another, God resurrects him. He participates in this action. And so what Peter 
essentially says is, you killed Jesus, you're guilty, you did it, God rescues and saves. Join the family. He goes on, and he makes this offer in verse 31. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So not only did God raise Jesus from the dead, but ultimately exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. So the reason that Jesus was raised and exalted was for the purpose of making repentance and forgiveness possible. It is because Jesus is resurrected that we find repentance and forgiveness. He highlights there in this specific instance, verse 31, to give repentance to Israel. Now what Peter's doing here is he's identifying the religious leaders as this symbol of Israel. He's saying you guys are the representatives of all of Israel. We're in the nation's seat. We are at the capital. We are in the temple area. And you are the highest level governing authority in all the nation. And so I'm making this offer to you as the representatives of Israel. I'm extending it to you. There is repentance <coughs> for Israel. There's an opportunity for forgiveness of sin. He's making this offer to them again. We find in verse 32, Peter continues. He says, and we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So they remark that they're witnesses. They're continuing their job to do what Christ called them to do, to be his witnesses, to testify to his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. But he also says that the Holy Spirit is a witness and is given by God. And so he gives us a couple things here. First, he says that we're witnesses. We're a part of this work. The Holy Spirit is testifying, which Jesus said in John 17 that would, he would do, the, uh, and in John 14, that the Holy Spirit would testify, would glorify Jesus. He would point to him. So he's falling in line with Jesus' words and the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a witness, but the Holy Spirit is given by God. And so he's linking these things together in a Trinitarian view. He's saying it was God the Father who sent the Son to live a perfect life on your behalf. It was God, the, the God of our fathers. He was the one who did this. He raised Christ from the dead so that there might be repentance and forgiveness. And because Christ has been exalted now to the Father's right hand, we also have the Holy Spirit who testifies to the, the Son's work. He is the one who comes alongside and says, well, I'm a witness of these things, and now is leading uh, and empowering his church. And so we find this Trinitarian view that they bring about. Peter just ups the ante. We've got the Father, the Son, and the Spirit together. Now, verse 33, we find the response of the religious leaders. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. This actually... Uh, the most literal translation of the Greek means like they felt like they were torn in two, like they were shredded apart. They, they were just like so mad that they were like shaking and like their bodies were about to rip apart from the, the, the fury and the anger that they were experiencing. Their response is one of anger. Verse 34, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So we got this uh, guy, Gamaliel. He shows up. This guy is a Pharisee. He's a teacher of the law. Later, we find that this man is a mentor to a younger Pharisee called Saul. Uh, but this guy here, he's super respected in the eyes of the people. Partially, this is due to his knowledge and his wisdom. But as we'll see from this text, it seems like he's just a pretty good politician. He, he knows how to play the game. 
he appears to be the only one who wants to actually discuss uh, what Peter was talking about. And so he's like, look, get these guys out of here. Get the apostles out of here. We need to have a closed session. So verse 35, stick with me. He said to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. And so Gamaliel, he comes up, he comes up with like this thought. He's just like, hey, maybe we shouldn't get so hasty here. Let's consider what we're going to do with these guys. I know you guys are super angry about this right now. But he gives these two examples of, of recent uprisings, which end up in nothing. And so he comes and he brings his application here in verse 38. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. So the first bit of advice he gives them is like, stay away from these guys. Just let them be. Don't worry about them. His thought, his reasoning behind this is, God's either going to reward these guys if they're really for him, or he's going to punish them and this will end up in nothing. He, he, he communicates this way. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. He wants to kind of see how it goes. Well, let's see how this thing shakes out. Because, you know, earlier some things happened and it just ended on its own. The second thing that he says is, if it's of God, you're not going to be able to overthrow it. You might even be found opposing God. So the statement that he makes is true, right? We can all kind of think about this and we can be like, yeah, like man's ways fail. So just kind of like let it fizzle out. Eh, all right. God's ways, if you oppose God, God's plan is not going to fail. And if you oppose God's ways, then you're opposing God. So we'll kind of see how this goes. You see what he does here with this? They take his advice. He comes up with a statement that's true to an extent, but what he does is he avoids having to make a decision about it himself. He's like, hey, let's just do nothing. He doesn't engage the claims. He's like, let me decide what I think. Because Peter's claim is that the resurrection is enough. What we have been doing, God's power on display is enough. And so what he does is become the ultimate fence sitter. He's like, I'm just going to kind of sit on the fence and see how it goes. And then like maybe if it starts to shake out, and I have to make a choice, then I will. And what he's doing here is he's playing the game. Super popular guy. He knows that the people are uh, super like excited about the apostles. He's like, I don't want to upset that crowd, so we'll just kind of let them go. But also, I got to come theologically because like the religious leaders are like really, you know, uh, theological in their, uh, in their um, communication. And so I got to be like, okay, well, you know, we don't want to oppose God. You know, you want to honor God, right? And so like, let's make sure that we are properly handling this. Let's just let it, let it be. But what Peter's claim is, is there's enough evidence already. You don't need more evidence. And so he's putting this decision off. He should be able to make a decision. Now, the other aspect of this, although this statement is true to a certain extent, God's word helps us discern the truth. And so when things are a straight up lie, we shouldn't just let them go on. We should oppose them. When the lies of the enemy are out there, we should speak the truth about those lies and we should illuminate those things with Scripture. And so if someone is claiming to be Jesus and they're clearly not Jesus, we should show from the Scriptures that they are not. When someone is bringing 
things that they say to be truth, but Scripture says otherwise, we ought to be able to show that God has said these things in his word, and we should obey God rather than man. And so it's not enough to say, well, let's see how it goes. If it's really like God's deal, it's going to like be successful. But if it's not, it'll just go away on its own. The fact that there are struggles doesn't mean that it's not a part of God's plan. And the fact that there's just easy-looking success doesn't mean that God's like automatically for it. We have to discern what is the purpose, how is God working. And so they give this advice. The, they take his advice. We see that uh, this Gamaliel's apprentice, this man named Saul, he doesn't take Gamaliel's advice. He's just like, nope, like, I'm going to be super against the church. And so he goes out and he starts just killing people. He gets wild. Uh, We'll see this um, as we move through the book of Acts. He he is like, I'm zealous for God and I want to destroy those who oppose him. And so he does uh, this. Now in verse 40, when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So Gamaliel, he comes up with like this kind of wise move, like, oh yeah, let's see how this goes. Let's sit on the fence. Everyone's going to be happy about it. That doesn't mean that the apostles escape any like harm. They get beaten. Uh, They don't avoid the council's punishment. Uh, This would be, a a beating of this nature would be something uh, historically that would be typical of disobedience. If you were disobedient, you would have this type of punishment. So it kind of fit uh, the crime to an extent. Uh, But then they were told not to speak in the name of Jesus and released. And so, again, they are told this. And their response we find recorded in verse 41 as we wrap. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. They were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching the Christ is Jesus. So they're pumped. They get beaten, just destroyed. And on the way out, they're just excited. They're ecstatic. This is the word of God working in them. They remember the words of Jesus. They remember what Jesus did on their behalf. This is how they rejoice in suffering, in trials. They remember Right? Because earlier they were just in prison and they got out and they didn't say like, oh, how come, how come we like were before the, the, this uh, council? How come we didn't get out without a beating this time? This suffering that they experienced wasn't something that would have been foreign in their mind. They realized that this was something that was expected and they became like Christ in their suffering. Their aim was to be like Jesus and to be uh, close to him. And they remembered his words. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks, and they, being there, hear this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus' words encouraged them, saying, Rejoice! You have a, a reward that is great in heaven. The prophets were faithful to the God to testify to this coming Messiah, and they suffered greatly, and yet here I am, Jesus says, as the fulfillment of that Messiah. And you, when you suffer likewise, know that you are in the same class, the same company as those faithful prophets who are doing the work of the Lord. They experienced great difficulty, but yet they were faithful and recognized by God as being faithful. Peter, being one of the men who received this beating, we find later in his letter in chapter 4, 1 Peter 4, verse 13. But rejoice... 
insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You see, what Peter says there is that opposition, that persecution, if you are truly testifying to Christ, if you are truly living out his character and you're experiencing difficulty, it's a confirmation, it's a validation that you are loving Jesus well, that it's evident to others that you love him more than you love anything else. And so likewise, we ought to have this mindset as we experience suffering and difficulty. The church continues to grow from here in verse 42. They did not stop every day in the temple and from house to house. They did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, the Christ is Jesus. So Luke just goes on to communicate that the daily ministry continued. Although the opposition rose, although there was a greater... Uh, difficulty, they just got stronger and stronger. They didn't avoid the temple area. They went from, they went to the temple and they went house to house communicating the power, the authority, the lordship of the resurrected Christ. And the church continues, continues to grow this morning we're here because they were faithful, because they did that, because they went house to house, because the apostles were beaten, because they faced this interrogation. The gospel has spread to a stage where we are here gathered this morning to proclaim that resurrected Lord. It's crazy to think how faithful the Lord is that he would bring us all here together as a result of their faithfulness in this moment. It's wonderful. And now we are sent out, likewise, as those witnesses to make Jesus known, to testify to his death, his resurrection, to let others know, and primarily to help them understand that they need the blood upon them. They need the blood just like we need the blood. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so thankful for your kindness to us in Christ. We're so thankful that you've given us this wonderful story of the faithfulness of your people so that we can see how you have empowered your people, how you've met their needs. And Lord, now you send us out into the field, into our homes, in the homes of our friends and our family, to communicate your gospel. Open doors Empower us by your Holy Spirit. When we are fearful of man, Lord, give us boldness. When we don't have words to say, Lord, we ask that you would act in accordance with your promises, that you would give us words to say when we do not know what to say. And Lord, we want to make Christ known. Encourage our hearts. We want to be found in you. We love you so much, Jesus. Amen.